Hi, this is Peter Francho, your state comptroller in Maryland. You're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with my co-host, joined as always by Mako's Executive Director, Michael Sanderson. And Michael, how are you today? <laughs> okay, here it's uh, day 87. <laughs> we have reached the last weekend of the 2018 general session. Lots of issues still up in the air. The plan today on the podcast, we're going to talk about a handful of issues that have just wrapped up, and we'll also discuss a handful of issues that are still pending. So Michael, let's go ahead and jump right in. Let's first talk about a big issue that's been in the news, and that's Amazon and Maryland's latest attempt to lure uh, the tech giant to Maryland. Right. And this is you know, a, a widely publicized and watched process where I mean, this is a huge company that has made it known they want to have a second campus you know, in North America. And they basically ran it up the flagpole and said, listen, we want to hear what's your offer. What what is the you know, what's the area look like? What does the workforce look like? And what sort of incentives would be available if we located in your town or in your state? And like everybody came to the table, but uh, but the Montgomery County offer from Maryland is among the twenty remaining bidders, and uh, Maryland has is putting together a really attractive pitch. It seems. Yeah. So HQ two is what we're talking about. Amazon's second headquarters, uh, twenty sites around there still remain in contention. Uh, Maryland General Assembly this week approved a six point five billion dollar tax incentive package for Amazon. That's the largest economic development package in state history. Um, And this is all on the hope that the retail giant will build a new headquarters here. I think Maryland is very attractive, Uh, Maryland, the entire region. So I think Mm -hmm. D.C. and Northern Virginia are also still in the running. But when Amazon's looking around and they have mostly a a millennial workforce, D.C. is the ultimate millennial city, I think one could say. We also have a great university portfolio, um, a great workforce, so a lot of attractive Uh, incentives for Amazon to relocate to Maryland. I think what's clear, though, is that regardless of whether they pick Maryland, D.C., or Northern Virginia, if they come here, all boats sort of rise. And I think that this would be a boon for the region as a whole. Well, I mean, the consequences of whatever region gets this, whether this ends up being somewhere north of us or south of us or, or in this immediate you know, part of the mid-Atlantic, uh, it's going to be a, a giant effect on sort of the economic contours of, of that area. They're, they're making a very viable claim that this is going to end up being you know, 50,000 jobs. Yeah, high paying job. Right. And so this is, this is, this is not, you know, this is not a, a way station. It's not a distribution center. Uh, this is, this is a, a tech campus that's going to change an area. So it's a different game. I mean, I've, I've been in town for long enough to see a wide variety of incentives for certain types of businesses or a particular business that's, you know, making a location decision or deciding you know, whether they can stay and things like that. And that's that's become part and parcel of state and local economic development. Uh, it's just it's part of the game. And there are some companies who basically go to the highest bidder. We can't get a good deal in one state. You know, Tennessee's got something else on the table. We'll do that for a while. So that's that's, that's part of how this game ends up being played, whether you like it or not. 
Uh, but um, I, we've never seen anything in the mix that has the, 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 the big potential like, like the HQ2 for Amazon. Yeah, I mean, there's a study that says that if Amazon were to come to Maryland, the state would get about a $17 billion annual infusion uh, to the economy. And that would be eventually, but obviously we're talking about a lot of money. Um, so we also have $2 billion um, that were promised in infrastructure and transportation. Obviously, that's a big issue for Amazon sure. as well. They want to have those uh, that infrastructure in place wherever they go. It's interesting to mention New Jersey has the second highest uh, offer. I think they uh, had an offer at about $7 billion or six point five somewhere in that area. But um, still some major cities in play. I think Boston, New Jersey, mm-hmm. Austin, Texas, which is a, a very interesting spot. Uh, and then, of course, Northern Virginia and D.C. But the General Assembly has come through. Uh, they've certainly offered a very incentive, uh, very interesting incentive package for Amazon to locate in Maryland. And we will have to wait and see what happens. I think at the end of the year, they're going to make their announcement. Right. Um, so after the elections, I'm sure they'll let that calm down. But hopefully... Uh, would get Amazon here in Maryland. Oh, it's, I mean, there's a quality of life component to to this process as well. And Amazon's not dumb. They know that they're 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 going to be able to attract a certain kind of workforce wherever they are. But you probably want to you want to be in a place where people are going to be happy to be living and working and you know, eventually raising a family and so forth. So I think you know, you know Maryland is is an attractive spot for a lot of different reasons. And you know, if part of that ends up being economic incentives and so forth, then you put your best foot forward. But I mean, another thing is, you know, 50,000 employees on the Amazon campus itself is only the start of the story. And as, as we know from military installations and other big employers, you end up with a whole town gown around an employer like that. So if you have 50,000 people who actually have an Amazon name tag, there's tens of thousands of people who are just – selling meatball subs and cutting hair and, you know, running restaurants and service and you get add on, you know, service providers who are, you know, just co-mingling with the things Amazon is doing. We know they have, you know, they have an effect on an awful lot of things in technology fields and retail and so forth. So this would be, this would be more than 50,000 new people. It'd be, it'd be a big, big advance. Big deal. So I think also it would be attractive for Amazon since they're mostly uh, have a West coast presence to, have this presence on the East Coast. We're sort of, you know, in the middle of the Eastern Seaboard. I think yep. that would be a great location for Amazon. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's get in now to the tax cut package. Michael, we've seen these bills moving through the General Assembly. There is a deal that has been worked out. We don't know if the entire package will be a part of a single bill or whether this will be a part, uh, or, you know, of separate bills that will eventually make it to the governor. But um, let's talk about the the deal that's been struck and what the tax cut package is going to look like in Maryland. So, so this is once again this is the state following through on how do we respond to the recent federal tax reform. So the the, the feds made some wide wide scope changes in the way federal income taxes work, and the the effect on Maryland's tax structure is peculiar. Uh, the easiest piece of it to understand that we've talked about a couple of times is you'll have a lot of Marylanders who will decide that on their federal tax form, they'll no longer itemize deductions and instead take a much more generous standard deduction on their federal form. 
And in current law and in what seems to be probably a locked-in practice, um, Maryland doesn't give you the ability to itemize just on your state form. We just piggyback on federal decisions. We don't have an army of auditors to to sort of manage uh, state-level deductions here. So because of that switch, uh, there's there's the potential for – some some sliver of Marylanders to end up losing out on that uh, because they do better on their their federal taxes with that that filing. So, a lot of uncertainty. We talked about this this last week that um, I don't think neither the state nor the counties feel like we've really got this pinned down what it's going to look like. Right. That's going to be a challenge for county governments in the next couple of months as they put together their budgets to figure out do you do you book revenue there or do you just wait and see. And then, you know, maybe make commitments later. The state's in kind of the same boat here. There's a general consensus that there's probably some bump in income tax revenues that comes from that's a that's a residual of the federal changes. So the state here is basic looks like the state policymakers have reached an agreement to do a piece of this. It ends up being around $100 million a year of three or four different components. We'll do some tax cuts, some refinements, we'll change a couple of things, and we'll do some give back and then you know maybe reassess a year or two down the road. Right. So that seems to be the consensus is that, look, we really don't know exactly how we're going to be affected. So we'll do, we'll do some things now that we th- we're comfortable doing. Um, we want to make sure that we, we give Marylanders some sort of break. But at the end of the day, there are a lot of moving parts to this, and it's best to hold off until we see what's going on, until we understand the effects of this better. And then we'll come back and address some of the lingering issues in the next couple of years. Right. So so in in the package, the, some of the components are it looks like the the House and the Senate have agreed on a relatively modest adjustment in the standard deduction for state purposes, um, but that because this isn't targeted to just the sliver of taxpayers who are adversely affected by the federal changes, this is something that affects everybody. So that's an across-the-board tax cut. You you increase you know, for for a for a joint filing by five hundred dollars. You take you know twenty five bucks in state taxes off off the bottom line for every every one of those returns, no matter what income class you're in. That's I mean it's a meaningful adjustment. Right, certainly a meaningful adjustment, and I think uh, Marylanders are going to feel that this year. Um, so it's good to see that the General Assembly has made some progress, but much to be determined. I think we'll have to wait until we realize those effects to until we you know we implement more changes in regard to taxes. So we're so we're roping that in as it looks like it's a done deal for this session. Mm-hmm. The House and the Senate leadership have gone public and said we've got this worked out. We have an agreement on what we're going to do. The bills aren't yet you know, on the governor's desk. Um, it hasn't gone through the full process, but this one you know, is basically in the books. So we can call this one a done deal uh, for for the terms of this podcast and how we're breaking this up, but much to be determined in years down the road. Let's get into a really interesting topic that we have discussed on the podcast, and that is this school construction saga. So let's go back uh, to the beginning here, Michael. This all has to do with the Knott Commission, right? Right. The Knott Commission met for two years. They came up with a bunch of great recommendations on how to streamline the school construction process. I think 90% of the bill that we've been discussing, everybody agrees on. They would have passed this bill probably uh, with zero no votes in in both the House and the Senate. Yeah, probably. Right. So, however, uh, there was an amendment added to the bill that took away the BPW, the Board of Public Works' power 
um, to have a bully pulpit and influence these school construction decisions. Um, that was very controversial. Uh, a mon- number of opponents who didn't want the BPW to be taken out of this process are saying, look, regardless of what you think, the BPW has been able to hold folks accountable for how they're spending money, and it's good to have that public process. The amendment uh, would expand the IAC and their role here and remove uh, the comptroller, uh, particularly and the treasurer, from this decision-making process. The governor will still be able to appoint representatives to the IAC, so theoretically he'll still have some influence there. But we've seen this bill now Uh, The bill was passed in the Senate and the House. The Senate was a very close vote. Uh, They had 29 votes. They couldn't afford to lose one vote um, if they wanted to override a veto. The House, there was a little bit more wiggle room. But um, they passed the bills. As we mentioned and as we predicted, the governor vetoed the bill. It came back to the Senate, and the Senate and the House uh, overrode the veto. The Senate was able to hold on to those 29 votes. So that's essentially how this has worked out. Um, You can go back and listen to last week's pod for a little bit more of what happened on the Senate floor and how this all went down and uh, the gripes that some folks had. But as we stand right now, that's a done deal. The bill uh, is done. They've overridden the veto and it is now law. And we weren't sure about the timing of this. We I think this this was not a long shot prediction, but we were correct last week in saying the legislature, you know, moved things along to get the bill on the governor's desk. So that if he elected to veto the bill, it would have to be done while the session was still in and while the legislature could react to it. Uh, if the governor had had wanted to maximize that time, he could have waited, I think, until Friday right. to, um, to to actually to, to do the veto and deliver that message back to the legislature. He went ahead and did it on Wednesday, which is not a random occurrence. It turns out the Board of Public Works, uh, the, one of the bodies in question for this whole back and forth had a regularly scheduled meeting this Wednesday and and the governor used that meeting cameras are rolling there's a big audience a lot of people are there because there's you know policy issues to be sorted out the, the board of public works routinely is looking at state contracts and a mm-hmm. variety of other different things that's that's their fiscal role uh, and so the opening of that meeting was a perfect venue for the governor to bring his copy of the bill and a giant red magic marker and draw an x through the bill it was a big you know, it was, it was a little bit of theater, mm-hmm. um, and that was you know that was all all by design. The, the comptroller, uh, who himself is part of this political debate, uh, took a lot of pleasure in joining the governor. Actually, he actually wrote his own name on the on the veto message too. Although uh, the gov- the comptroller, <laughs> we should mention, has uh, no authority to veto right, any bill. Right. But yeah, he wrote a signature line, signed it, and wrote for the people right. on the bill. The bill had all these stamps on it and the big red X. So it was some really fascinating political theater, um, which was not lost on uh, Senator Mike Miller, um, who mentioned that this was all theater and pageantry at the DPW meeting, and they quickly overrode that veto. Yeah. Well, on, on a certain level, um, the, the the fact that the Board of Public Works was a venue for political messaging about the school construction process to, to some members of the General Assembly that helped make the case mm-hmm. that these decisions, maybe they shouldn't be in such a public and such a potentially political forum. Um, you, you, meant, you made mention of the IAC, the Interagency Committee on School Construction, is a, you know a, a little less show pony, a little more workhorse kind of body. Right. And, and now that this bill has passed – 
that's going to be the principal venue for state analysis and assessment of school projects. It'll be an expanded group. Um, I mean, if you're if you're number counting, and in a process like this, number counting is a pretty important thing. You'll end up with four appointees from the executive branch, effectively from the governor, mm-hmm. four appointees from the legislative branch, from the speaker and the president, and the ninth member of the ninth group is the state superintendent of schools, who's appointed by the state board of education. So on, on a certain level, that that passes some muster as being a balance among the you know be between these two uh, these two branches of state government who are both stakeholders in this process. Um, that's yeah, it's it's not as as simple as counting the heads. Uh, this was this was a this was a became personal for a lot a lot of people. But the um the the vote in the Senate. You mentioned the 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 numbers uh, to hold the votes. We had talked. We've 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 drifted into a little parliamentary procedure and so forth as we've talked here. But there was a little bit of drama because mm-hmm. the Senate did not have the luxury of losing a single vote. So they needed every senator who voted yes the first time around on the bill. There's only 29. That's precisely what you need for a three-fifths vote to override. Uh, didn't have the luxury of losing a single senator. The interesting twist was uh, Senator Muse from Prince George's County uh, was an excused absence during the first vote on this bill. He was not – it wasn't a clear call what he might do on this bill. He was present for the veto override and then after the drum roll, people were looking on the tote board, how Senator Muse voting and? The vote was 29-15-1. That doesn't add up. Senator Muse (laughs) did not cast a vote. And that's significant because if you're in the room, you're supposed to vote. You can be excused. Uh, apparently, he was not excused, but he just didn't cast a vote. And, Michael, that is uh, uh, against the Senate rules, right? Right. And, I mean, you know, there's a little booklet of the, the rules of the Senate of Maryland and so forth. And it's not like the booklet holds the power over everybody. But, I mean, that it, those are the established rules of the body that if you're present and you're in the chamber, um, you can be excused from voting because you have a conflict mm-hmm. or something of that nature. You can be excused from attending if there's something else you had to do. Uh, the, the senator had to preside over over a ceremony back in Prince George's County last week and had to miss that vote. But that was an excused absence. Right. Uh, this was just no light on the tote board, which – uh, we don't see. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting, and it would have been even more interesting if they would have lost one of their votes and then Senator Muse didn't vote. Um, that that would have been really, really interesting. But ultimately, uh, the Senator Miller was able to keep those 29 votes, and they were able to override the veto. So it's important to mention again, most of this bill is good. There are a lot of great components in this bill that we think will really help with school construction and the streamlining of school construction. Um, it'll, it has some alternative financing stuff that we really like. A lot of components of this bill um, that are great, but there was just this little uh, amendment that people were just had tons of heartburn over. Right, and it's a headline grabber, and it was it was awkward for us as stakeholders in the balance of the bill and hoping that that would advance to see this controversial issue, you know, potentially threaten to bring the whole thing down. Um, you know, back to Senator Muse for a moment. I mean, his circumstance make this make some sense for him to be willing to be- betray the rules of the body. Uh, he's not running again for the Senate. This is the last year of his four-year term in the Senate. He's running for the, the county executive in, in, in Prince George's County. 
So, so he's not, yeah. he's not, he's not in, um, in the fold in the same way that many of his other colleagues who are, who are seeking to return to the body are. So nonetheless, it's, um, that's, that's one we are not used to seeing in town. So done deal there. Um, we can, we can say that's done. It is now the law. So from here on forward, the BPW will not, um, take up school construction issues. It'll you be in the what? IAC. Now, so that's what the law says, but. I don't know. We may we may find that there's there's still a venue at the Board of Public Works for some commentary and analysis and so oh. forth. You oh, think I'm so? sure. You think yeah. there might be I'm a little? I'm sure the bully yeah. pulpit will still be there. Right. Um, but yeah, so the General Assembly could look at this again next year. It's always a possibility. But for now, uh, that is a done deal. We will now move to school safety. Uh, there have been a number of school safety bills. We've talked about this on the podcast as well. There has been a lot of speculation on what the General Assembly will do to address. Uh, We had a horrible school shooting in St. Mary's County just a few weeks ago. We saw a terrible school shooting in Florida and across the country, really. This has become a major problem. Um, So yesterday, the Senate uh, passed a bill that would require a school resource officer or an adequate police presence to be present at each and every public school. The original bill, before it was amended on the floor, uh, this would only apply to high schools. But in a very close vote of 23 to 22, uh, Senator Huff proposed an amendment that would make this apply to all public schools. And um, the Senate took that amendment. So now it heads over to the House. There's some questions about how much this is going to cost. Is this really a mandate? Does a police presence mean that, you know, you have to be at the school? I don't think so. I I think there are a lot of questions to be worked out there. But um, Senator Miller did say, look, I like the idea, but I think this is going to be expensive. Um, So, again, very close vote on that amendment. It now goes over to the House and um, we'll see what the House does. But this is a move um, that we expected to come in some form on school safety. And the school resource officer question and police presence has become a very popular idea with most legislators. And we've we've already seen some grant funding get incorporated into the other school construction bill, the idea of let's get some dollars out so that uh, school buildings can get some retrofits in their entranceways or metal detectors or other system changes that might be beneficial for security purposes. There's already been a commitment at that level. Right. This was a little bit more about longer term expectations and staffing and resources and so forth. You know, the school resource officer is sort of the government euphemism for an armed, usually it's a sworn uh, law enforcement officer, either a deputy sheriff or a member of the, the local police force. But so so that presence in high schools was already being contemplated. It's a it's a widespread practice already. Mm-hmm. So this this wasn't um, a brand new concept that, that were and uh, at this also it's worth mentioning at the same time that the state is contemplating statewide policy for all public schools. Uh, we also are seeing a number of jurisdictions making announcements about what their plans are, and some of them are probably going to exceed these standards mm-hmm. to fit what their community is is asking for. Right. So, so now we're left with some uncertainty as we as we kind of transition from things that are that are done. No surprise that a school security measure is is moving. Mm-hmm. I think the likelihood of something passing is high. The close vote on the floor with the amendment to extend a certain expectation to every school shows that there's still a little bit of an asterisk on this. 
because um, it, it wasn't as it wasn't as simple as each school has to have exactly you know, this number of people or right. this character of person. It, it's we, we want to make sure there is a, an appropriate law enforcement presence at every public school. Um, difficult to vote against that in concept. It's also really difficult if you're a fiscal note writer or if you're someone doing regulations for the Department of Education, what exactly are the standards there? Right, and what exactly it will cost is, right. is the other question. Um, there's there's some other stuff in this bill. There'll be some assessments done, um, a, a lot of reporting requirements, but the main the main issue that everyone's been talking about here is whether or not this should apply to only high schools or it should apply to every public school. I think Senator Huff's argument is, look, we need to standardize this across all schools. I don't want to go back to my district and say, look, we did something for high schools, but middle and elementary schools, um, you know, we we didn't get to that. So that was his argument. We'll see what happens in the House. But certainly um, very interesting to see what will happen there. I think this is an issue everybody wants to address and we know will be addressed in some way. Right now, there's about $42 million total um, part of that is in the capital budget. Part of that is in the not bill that we just discussed. And then part of that's in the operating budget that the General Assembly has funded for school uh, safety enhancements. So we've seen that money come in. Now the question is, what else are they going to do? Right. So so there's no doubt there's going to be a state commitment. And I, I think there's almost no doubt that a bill is going to pass that has some series of state developed expectations mm-hmm. for for what sort of thing do you need to have present at all of our schools and you know that that sort of thing but uh, the details still to be ironed out and exactly you know how how precise does the state need to be when they said an appropriate or adequate law enforcement presence okay philosophically you you've stated the case that's not as simple as there must be a sworn say you know uh, SRO on right. every single build, school building so yeah we'll, we'll see how this filters out but uh, no no surprise to see something happening here yeah this will likely come down to the wire so we will keep you updated there We're going to go ahead and take a quick break. When we come back, we will get into some issues that uh, are still up in the air. We've talked about issues that have wrapped up, but in the waning days of session, we still have a lot to work out. We'll discuss that and more after the break. back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. We've talked about what's done. Michael, now let's talk about what still needs to be worked out. Day 87 of a 90-day session as we record on Friday. And oddly enough, still like maybe one-third of the work of the General Assembly is yet to be done. This seems, is seems not, to always happen that this way. This is not unusual, but that's just how it goes. All right, so let's first talk about the crime bill blow-up. Um, so... There are multiple proposals on how to address crime in Maryland, and particularly, I think, in Baltimore City, we've seen a huge uptick in the murder rates, a lot of uh, ideas on how um, to handle what's happening there and also throughout the state. Um, And I think the Senate Judicial Proceedings Committee had a bill that they worked on for a very long time. Mm -hmm. It was a big bill, 55 pages. They sent it over to the House. Um, The House has rejected their bill. Um, And I think, Michael, a lot of this comes down to uh, sentencing, right, and mandatory minimums and and that debate. 
Um, let, let's talk a little bit about that. And you've been around a long time. You've seen this debate before in Maryland. It's very controversial about how to handle uh, repeat offenders and whether or not um, there should be a, a mandatory sentence that a, just, a judge must impose on them. Right. So this, this is not a, a, a debate that's unique to Maryland. Um, I mean, some of the issues that, that Baltimore is challenged with right now are maybe sharper here than in some other cities. But this is not, this is not a debate that's just happening right here. It, it's kind of tricky because over the last several years, we've seen at both the federal and state level a, a commitment to try and reduce you – know, you know, people would say, you know, let's, let's get out of the over-incarceration business. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of this is focused on nonviolent offenders, uh, people who are you – know, who have been charged with possession of, of drugs and illegal substances, that sort of thing, um, but who, who don't have violent acts and those sorts of things. Um, are we doing right by that community by having lots of users locked up in our jails and our prisons? Right. And, and, and right. you know, there is a, uh, I think, a racial component to this as well. I mean, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that. That's lingering in the background. Sure. Everything about sentencing um, leads you to, to look at the demographics of who are in our correctional institutions in this country. And, you know, sadly, this, you know, we are we are the we are number one by far in the world at putting people in jail mm-hmm. and um, for for a variety of complicated policy reasons. Uh, I think there's been a pendulum effect on this topic nationwide, and of late, the pendulum has been swinging away from policies that that automatically trigger aggressive sentences for a particular circumstance of a particular crime. Uh, we've seen some states have gone out and adopted things like you know three strikes and you're out, right. you know three three convictions, and we're going to basically declare you a lost cause and get a big stiff sentence. Um, Maryland, over the last couple of years, in the name of criminal justice reform, has been moving away from some of those areas, say serious, violent felonies uh, still should be treated very seriously, and there needs to be a punishment and long-term incarceration focus for for those violent offenders Mm -hmm. or the people who are the, the drug kingpins or the people who are at the top of organizations that are causing a drug scourge. So so that's that's kind of been consensus. But these lower level offenders, people who get busted with a little bit of this or a little bit of that a couple of times, having people serving multiple years uh, for those sort of things, you derail somebody's future there potentially. And the you know you look at you look at the character of people who are incarcerated and there is there's a substantial racial element to this. Yeah so Maryland's moving away from this idea of three strikes and you're out or anything like that, right? And and I think we're trying to address instead recidivism and trying to, um, you know, get people that have issues with the law, sort of get them the help that they need and, and you know, not lock them up and throw away the key, but try and figure out a way to make them productive citizens um, when they get out. But, and, and so then if, if, that's, if that's the setting where Maryland policy and I think you know, to some degree, national policy has been drifting in that general direction. Now you have issues in the city of Baltimore at a flashpoint, mm-hmm. and people are mortified by the numbers of shootings and shooting deaths in the city. 
people feel it's a crisis. And if you're in the state legislature, whether you represent Baltimore or another part of the state, I mean, Baltimore has a has a very special place in the heart of this entire state. Yes, it does. And, and we feel culturally and communally connected to the city. So nobody wants to see this continue. Uh, it, it is appropriately a high priority to, to find, can you make policy changes to help make things better? If it's, if it's procedural things so we can prosecute more effectively or whatever. But one of the things that pops up on that list ends up being against the tide saying, let's, let's find some of the people who are committing gun crimes or violent crimes and let's be more aggressive because you know, there's always a story about this person who committed a terrible crime and look at this guy's rap sheet. How, how did he go through the system seven times previously and he did this and he did that and then this was a suspended sentence and this was a walk away and the next thing you end up with is a, is a terrible ending to that story. Speaking of that story, so Delegate Talmadge Branch um, has that story. His grandson was murdered in Baltimore City, and uh, he actually presented legislation that does uh, incorporate mandatory minimums. This would be for a repeat offender uh, for with with a gun, so illegally carrying a gun. Um, Delegate Branch talked about the person who murdered his grandson. That gun had been used in other murders. This guy um, had been in and out of prison, and he thought he shouldn't have been on the street. So that's a very controversial stand um, for someone who's, you know, talking about Baltimore City and what should be done. Um, the, the bill we talked about a little while ago from the Judicial Proceedings Committee did not incorporate mandatory minimums, but they heard Delegate Branch's bill that did, and there was quite a discussion. I think that the committee um, is, is not in love with this idea of mandatory minimums, and there are still a number of bills floating around. I think we have to say that it's very, very likely a crime bill will pass this year. Everybody wants to do something, but exactly what that bill is going to entail uh, is, is still the question. There's a lot of passion for this issue in the General Assembly, and it's coming down to the waning days. Right. And and and, and there's also, I, I think, to some degree, I think it's fair to say there's there's a little bit of pride of authorship that on, on this topic, the Senate, I mean, you have, you have two committees, the Senate Judicial Proceedings Committee, the House Judiciary Committee. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> they basically are the, the thought leaders on criminal, criminal law in general, but sentencing policy and all these sort of matters, police issues generally. So they're, they're the ones who have basically been delegated as the lead and informally the House more or less deferred to the Senate and said, build a bill and we'll consider your bill. Which they did. Um, but, I mean, the Senate worked, put a lot of shoulder into this. Um, the, the This is not an unusual thing, but there were lots of individual bills introduced by a wide variety of sponsors. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the, the Senate consolidated lots of different ideas and some things that came up through public hearing process and stakeholder input and turned into one omnibus bill and said, you know, this, this is the way to do it. It's all under one umbrella. Here's a bunch of components, probably without any expectation that it would just get a, get a rubber stamp in the house of delegates. Mm -hmm. The way this usually works is here's a 55 page bill. The house rejects eight or nine things in the bill and they put in three or four of their own and then they work out their differences. Right. Everybody thought that would be the path forward here. Right. And and that's not what happened. I mean, I think the uh, Judicial Proceedings Committee was somewhat shocked when they realized that the House wasn't going to move their bill and they they weren't going to take the bill and say, look, we like some of this, we don't like some of this, here's what we like, here's what we don't, we'll work out the differences. 
but instead just saying, no, we're, we're not going to move your bill. Um, I think you could see yesterday that uh, the members of JPR were in shock that that had happened. Now the question is, um, what do they do? What does the Judicial Proceedings Committee do with the bill that the Judiciary Committee sent over from the House? Do right. they try to incorporate some of what they did before or, or not? Because obviously everybody wants a bill to pass, but we want to make sure if you're, in, if you're in that Senate committee, you don't want to put anything in there that the House is just going to outright reject and, and put uh, getting a crime bill passed in jeopardy. So I would I would think this shapes up as last few days of session the top priority now for the two committee the two committees who, are, who work in this area, but also I think for the presiding officers yes. to to get engaged and, and for their staff to contribute on this as well. So I mean I, I think our fair assessment is the likelihood of a bill passing is high. Exactly what's in it um, really up for grabs. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, so keep in touch. Stay tuned. We will uh, we'll update you there with uh, any uh, news on crime bill. Let's talk about what's going to be on the ballot next year. So uh, we already know that same day voter registration will be on the ballot. Um, this is a bill that we've talked about. This bill was passed by the General Assembly. The governor has let it become law without his signature. I think uh, this was one of the candidates that uh, for a bill that he could potentially veto. Uh, the governor chose not to do that. So there will be a ballot question of on whether or not uh, Marylanders want to allow same-day voter registration at the polls. Um, this is a tricky issue. It's become a partisan issue, but we know it's going to be on the ballot. Another right. bill that we thought was fast-tracked through the General Assembly, um, we thought this was a done deal. I do still think uh, a bill will pass, and we will see this on the ballot, but this is a constitutional amendment for uh, the lockbox, right? We've talked about this education lockbox and how to deal with uh, revenues that come from casinos. And uh, we, we've talked about this before. The governor had his own um, uh, version of this bill. It wouldn't have been on the ballot. Uh, it would have been done through statute. But the House and the Senate, um, they have an idea that puts it on the ballot. This would fence off those funds to um, supplement and not supplant funding for education. Um, so we have seen the Senate move the bill pretty quickly, um, right. and now both the House and the Senate version of this same bill are in the House in the Appropriations Committee. They've been there for a while. They both have received a favorable report, but um, this is another one that's coming down to the end. And so this this seemed like it was ready to go. We saw sponsors before the session announce their intention to do this. Mm -hmm. And then both presiding officers, the speaker and the president, both spoke warmly about this idea. So all the signaling has been there through the whole session that a plan to fence off casino money, make sure it's an, it's above and beyond funding that goes through, goes to education, what was going to pass, it's going to be put on the ballot, and it will pass on the ballot. So, Michael, let me ask you then, <laughs> we saw the Senate move the bill quickly. Right. What could possibly be the reason that they've slowed this down and now we're, we're, we're watching this now in the, in the waning days of session? Could this have anything to do with the tax bill? I think, I think that's, the, that's the best idea, and I, I, don't, I don't claim that we've got certainty here, but I think that makes some degree of sense. As we've talked about Maryland being unsure about our footing with income taxes, uh, I mean, the, 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 
the counterpoint in the lockbox idea is if you're if you're taking this money that's coming from casino revenue and you're committing it for new level of school investment, mm-hmm. you you then take well we've been using that to fund our current school formulas, so we'll need new. We, we need some resources either, either by cutting the budget or by having revenue available to fund the current stuff so that we're not supplanting right. um, you know, you know, current, current funds or general funds or whatever. So with, with that as the philosophical structure behind the lockbox, um, these, these, these ideas are probably intuitively connected. If, if it turns out that there ends up being a bump and a little bit of bump in the income tax that accounts for two, three, four hundred million dollars of state revenue, that may be what what the the state of Maryland needs to afford to do the lockbox. Right. So um, yeah, the, the idea of maybe we're hearing the other shoe drop just these last few days with a resolution to do some give back on income taxes, but not necessarily a full three, four, five hundred million dollar tax package. It may be that an affordable tax package, leaving some things uncertainty is the way to give everybody comfort that we can afford to do the lockbox program. And like, so, so maybe as the tax bills pass, we'll see the lockbox weasel its way out of the house and, and get on and get on the ballot. Certainly makes sense. We'll have to see, but um, certainly we do expect, um, I, I think that bill will eventually pass. So we should see that on the ballot um, as well as the same day voter registration question. So uh, keep an eye on this lockbox bill. We'll certainly update you on that as well. And Michael, now let's get into cannabis. And um, this has been an ongoing saga. Last year, uh, the on Signy Die, the last day of session, at the last hour, the last minutes, the last seconds, <laughs> um, there was a bill uh, that was on the desk, uh, ready to be voted on. They they simply ran out of time, and this has to do with the licensing process for dispensaries and growers in Maryland and who should get those licenses. And we want to make sure that um, we're spreading those out adequately and across uh, all races, all incomes, you name it. But but this is to do with that. And we're seeing a bill now that's seeking to address what was not addressed last year. The bill is moving but now there is this quirky zoning sideshow that that's popped up. Yeah. So be- before we get to that, the the reason this is a matter of some urgency is is on the growers' side. Mm-hmm. So you know Maryland is 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 already now you know got things up and running as far as the the production and processing and then sale at dispensaries of medical marijuana or cannabis. So so that's already up and running. Um, there's been widespread concern that the the licensees for the growing side mm-hmm. um, lacked diversity that would be reflective of the full state. And that was a priority of the state legislature to tackle. They got lost in the specifics. They ran out of time last year. It's a bit of an embarrassment for everybody involved. Um, so uh, this year's bill, I, I, I've forgotten, but it was like Senate Bill 2 and House Bill 1, That's right. early introduction, strong sponsor line. Everybody's agreed we've got to get this fixed. We, we, have, we need to revise the, the, the um, licenses for, for the manufacturing side, for the growers. Now this bill's down to the wire. 
Um, it seems like most of the content is, has worked has more or less worked out. But on the floor of the Senate, we suddenly ended up with a new issue, um, not about the growers, but about the dispensaries, about mm-hmm. the you know the place that would have this for 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 sale or for distribution. And the the twist is some some nuances of well, what happens if a dispensary can't find a location in your designated region? Right. So, so as, as as you mentioned, the the process was was trying to say let's spread this out across the state, mm-hmm. and one way to do that that was in the legislation that put put this all together years ago was. Um, I'm sorry. This is in regulations adopted by by the by the commission that does the licenses, saying, "Well, we'll award two dispensary licenses for each senatorial district." Right now, that's, that doesn't mean the senator is in charge, but that's a way of saying each each senatorial district rep- represents about the same number of pe- number of people. So we'll spread this out geographically across the state. Right. So so that makes some sense mm-hmm. that wherever there's you know. 100,000, you know, 125,000 people or so, they, there's going to be some access in there for people who need this product. Okay, so that way you don't have it get clustered in one community or another. That all makes sense. So you now have a, sort of a rider amendment saying someone's got a hardship. I can't find a location in this district. I want to claim hardship and move somewhere else. Okay. So the general sense. So you and I know uh, the the difficulties of zoning and 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 that intricate process locally. And the general assembly now is getting a taste of this on the floor while they're debating this bill. Right. Because if if you now are going to grant a, a a dispensary license holder the chance to pick up and go somewhere else. Who's going to get the third dispensary? Is it going to, going to go to the to the you know, next the neighbor next next door neighborhood over, or is it going to be in the next county, or is it going to be on the other side of the state? Right. And so so the the, the on the floor of the Senate, this was playing out in real time without a lot of open testimony and conversation, but suddenly they're talking about, does the receiving area need to sign off? Does it have to comply with local zoning? The answer to that was yes, but who does the sign off became tricky. And I don't think we want to bog down this conversation with all these details, but it gets tricky when you have county government and municipal government. And in a few cases, you have the planning and zoning authority is neither of the above. It might be a regional entity. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, uh, the question of who should sign off that it's okay to have a third facility in this in this general area, um, that's contentious too. Yeah, so a lot of questions. Uh, this is another bill that uh, we certainly expect will pass. We certainly think this will get worked out. Uh, the details will be worked out. This is a very small component of, uh, of this bill that everybody thinks we need to address um, the diversity of these licenses that go to the growers of medical cannabis. This is a fix that, that they've needed to address. But this issue has popped up. Um, this has to do with zoning. And this zoning is not a, a county or a municipality saying, no, don't put it here. It's about how far back it needs to be from a school or from a residence. These are all very important functions of local governments to determine where these, lo- where these should be located and, and to make sure that you know, the community has some input in that we're not putting a dispensary right next to a school. I don't think anybody would want that. So this idea, as Michael mentioned, of who gets the sign-off, who needs to, to give that ultimate okay, we can't, you can't find a location here, so you'll move here. Who is in charge of saying that's okay is the ultimate question that they must tackle now in the waning days of session. Yeah. So like like everything that's on this list, uh, we've been saying we expect it to pass. This one... 
my level of certainty on this bill passing is really high. Yeah. It'll pass in some form or another. And this matter of the local zoning and local approval is going to get worked out one way or the other. Um, I, I think it should work out fine. I agree. So, Michael, we have talked about what's done. We've talked about what's left. Let's now discuss a little bit about what happens on Monday on Signy Die, the final day of session. Let, let's let's go through the day and what's going on here in Annapolis. Well, as as you and I try and make this podcast manageable, and we say let's talk about six or eight things, you know that that's that's fine. But the the reality is there are probably three or four hundred more bills that the legislature seeks to pass that have not yet finished the process. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there are two or three or four steps remaining between now and then. Um, You know, Mako's a stakeholder in a bill that the House bill literally just got out of the House of Delegates uh, within the last day or two. It's stuck in the Senate Rules Committee. That bill still has a chance to make it through the whole process. Sure. So, so Monday's the final day, and that literally is when the clock strikes midnight. They drop the gavel wherever they are. You made mention of of last year's fix-it bill on the cannabis process. Um, that bill was a, a widely agreed-to compromise, uh, but it didn't get through the process. Yeah, it was on the you, desk. You drop the gavel, and it's over, and everything dies then. What what that you work backwards from midnight, and what that means is there will be scurrying back and forth in both chambers throughout the day on Monday, and there'll be issues that pop up as a priority, but it needs to get passed by the House. The House puts on an amendment that has to go back to the Senate. The Senate has to sign off on the amendment. The paperwork has to go through both chambers and get a full final sign off on the identical version of the bill. Um, There'll be lots of other things that are in conference committee where there's a few delegates and a few senators trying to work out differences, work out a new set of amendments and have everybody vote on the same thing. Point being, it's it is it's a it's a madhouse. Yes, that's the best. I think that's the best word. We could have just said madhouse and be done with the segment. Yeah. So so I mean, that's what Monday looks like. And it's. It'll be high pressure, and sometimes uh, you know tempers run high, and there will be you know friendships that are tested, and partnerships that are broken, and things like that happen. It's it's just the nature of the business. Something about deadlines does that to human beings, and in large groups, um, we're all vulnerable to it. So so it'll be down to the wire, and I guarantee you know Mako still has a list that of things that affect counties or things that have a chance to move we didn't think they did, and suddenly something will happen. Happen. We'll, we'll be watching things all the way till midnight on Monday, I'm sure. It'll be a long day for sure. We've, we've seen already the Senate and the House meeting twice a day. They're coming in in the morning. They're get, doing work. They're taking a break, holding hearings in their committees, and then coming back. We know they're coming in tomorrow on Saturday. Uh, they, they need every second they can get literally uh, before the Monday night deadline. So a flurry of activity. Um, as Michael said, it will be a madhouse, um, as it always is. But, uh, but I think what we're going to do is uh, on Tuesday, uh, Tuesday or Wednesday, we will uh, we'll, we'll put a podcast out that just sort of recaps Signy Die, what happened, what moved, what didn't move. We'll, we'll go over our predictions here of what's, uh, what's still in play and whether or not we were right and that all the bills we discussed will eventually pass. Um, but, but I think that'll be important as a wrap-up for Signy Die. Yeah. And let's give ourselves a little wiggle room. Tuesday might be a tough day. Yeah, Wednesday might be uh, more appropriate. <laughs> so we'll see. And, and Michael, one more thing I wanted to mention. Uh, we talked about Amazon HQ2. Um, I think we're already looking ahead and hearing some, uh, some you know, commotion about HQ3 
And apparently Guam may be in they, play. They, they, they should put a big offer on the table, I, I think. I think they're going to have a really lucrative uh, incentive deal that Amazon will have a hard time turning down. <laughs> so on that note, uh, we will sign off here on the last Friday before the General Assembly finishes up the 2018 legislative session. Uh, go ahead, give us a like on the podcast, subscribe, tell your friends, and uh, tune in on uh, Wednesday, most likely, for our signy die wrap-up. Until then, Michael and Kevin signing off. We will see you soon.